The Yearbook Sportscast. Says in the yearbook at Hotmail.com to contact us. This podcast is available. Lots of places, uh, so many platforms, wherever you find Look, just listen. I'm Doug. Finally saw the 2016 documentary Ice Guardians. Which, again, I keep wanting to call it Ice Gardens, which sounds like a wonderful place. Uh, it's about fighters in pro hockey. Uh, Ice Guardians is on a lot of top ten lists for sports movies and or documentaries. But in 108 minutes, Ice Guardians doesn't have a lot to say. The movie put together an impressive amount of footage, and it looks really good. It's also a reminder that former Kings, Ducks, Panthers, Canadians enforcer George Peros needs his own movie. There's also some interesting points made. Uh, For one, Europe famously does not allow fights. There's no fighting in hockey in Europe, but fighting in hockey is also a thing in the U.K. Uh, The movie also brings up several key debates. Is fighting not a big reason for the sport's concussions? Is the link between enforcers and suicide overblown? Is hockey more dangerous for the other skaters when there is no fighting? It's long been held that, if you're not familiar, while the rest of the world doesn't allow fighting in hockey in those countries, the lack of a deterrent on the ice, the deterrent a player who will beat you up if you step out of line, leads to serious cheap shots from opponents. Um, Would half of hockey's fans just disappear if there were no fighting? These are all difficult debates, but Ice Guardians never really gets into those debates, and those debates mostly lack counterpoints. There's interesting players in Ice Guardians for sure, but it's mostly just an ode to fighting, and it's not a very good one. Not true story, Slapshot and Goon did odes to fighting a lot better. And George Peros, the very, very bright Princeton-educated player who memorably in Ice Guardians basically says he retired rather than go back to the minors to face frontier justice every night, he absolutely needs his own movie. All sports are having a difficult time coming back. Baseball just shut down training facilities. A number of college football players tested positive for COVID-19. One of the pro women's soccer league teams pulled out of the league's month-long neutral site tournament. And now IndyCar tries to come back next week after a month off. The fanless Texas race a month ago, that was a success. And that, yes, that should have been the name of the name of the race. Whatever it was should have just been the fanless Texas race. How mysterious and awesome does that sound? But that race uh, was a success, at least publicly. No one's been reported sick as a result of the race, and the TV ratings were up. But now comes a big month. No more one-offs. There are five IndyCar races in July, which is a little misleading because four of those races are going to be run over just two weekends. One race on Saturday, July 11th. One race on Sunday, July 12th in Wisconsin. And then two races in two days the next week in Iowa. But after Texas apparently ended happily, now IndyCar's schedule gets serious. The series returns July 4th with an IndyCar NASCAR doubleheader at Indianapolis. But this time, instead of IndyCar doing everything, practice qualifying race, all in one day in an effort to prevent outbreaks, practice and qualifying are Friday, July 3rd, with the race on Saturday. That's different. And different may possibly maybe bring different COVID results. Also, what health results will races on back-to-back days bring? Is that better? Is that worse? And July's results are huge because then comes the Indianapolis 500 in late August, which will be run with fans. Now, even though there's a race at Mid-Ohio two weeks before the Indianapolis 500, if the series experiences a COVID outbreak or anything else bad in July, 
an August Indy 500 is suddenly very much in trouble. And I'm not going to pretend that I've seen IndyCar's financial books, but like athletic departments count on college football for cash, IndyCar counts on the Indy 500 for cash. Officials have said the 500 could get moved again, but obviously there's only so many more months after that that aren't winter. Speaking of college football and non-revenue sports, there's no word yet on the status of women's college soccer and women's college volleyball, among others, which would normally start playing in August or early September. Unlike Division I college football, which even at schools with bad attendance still draws thousands of people, social distancing is possible in some places for soccer and volleyball. And that is absolutely not a burn. We love both sports. And it's unfortunate for the athletes who want to get pumped up by a big crowd. But being able to go to a game and being able to pick your seat and just spread out, that's nice. Anyway, women's college soccer plays outside. And in some places, only several dozen fans are on hand. Volleyball is indoors, but some larger schools don't draw well to larger arenas, which makes it easier for spectators to spread out. This podcast was at a Division I volleyball match last fall at an arena with only about a couple thousand seats, but the maybe 100 or 150 fans were socially distanced without even knowing it. On the other hand, at another Division I volleyball match last fall, a slightly smaller arena was packed. Uh, women's soccer, meanwhile, in some places draws at least 1,000 fans or close to it, and some places draw double that. Then there's the question of whether some sports will be allowed to play while others won't be allowed to play. What if field hockey or tennis seem manageable enough, but volleyball is canceled? Would schools do that? Would schools allow soccer to go on, but not football? Famously, the football team's revenue pays for the entire athletic department, but that's complicated. Big-time football, where it's big-time, does pay the bills. At a school, almost all or all of any school's teams, even the good teams, lose money. So the cash from the football program supports those teams. It pays for everything involved with those teams. But even a few big-time football teams lose money. Other big-time teams make only small profits on football. Big-time schools in smaller conferences do lose money on football, and there have been claims of adjusting the books. So it looks like football is making more money than it actually is. Anyway, would local football fans complain if every other fall sport that their sport supports played on, but football would not? Or would football fans understand the difficult circumstances here? Some of the non-revenue sports with lower attendance seem like plausible options, especially if attendance is capped, so there's no mad rush to the only live sport on campus. But we don't know yet how close those sports are to playing this late summer slash fall. <laughs>